was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change, so I shortened my sights somewhat and direct decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they wouldn't have it. None of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realized if I had only changed myself first, then by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would have then been able to better my country. And who knows, I may have even changed the world. When we think about changing the world, Usually we tend to think about changing systems, changing institutions, changing policies, changing technologies, or changing others. But what you just heard was our guest Peter Montoya reading a story, supposedly from a headstone of an ancient English monk, that gets us to rethink where we need to start when we want to change the world. The point of this story is that change should always start with ourselves, that we should start with ourselves first, Tim. Like Lady Klotz's book, Subtract, with its counterintuitive narrative about driving change by subtracting rather than adding, Peter's book, The Second Civil War, A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation, begins with the counterintuitive premise that you're not going to change someone else's mind unless you are ready to change yourself first. And that starts with acknowledging, and acknowledging regularly, that you're not always right, that you misunderstand things. You, you have biases that pre- that prevent you from seeing every situation clearly. It's an important and fundamental life lesson that helps us better understand why we do what we do. And speaking of why we do what we do, this is Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores human nature through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. On our podcast, we usually speak with researchers, authors, and practitioners. But in this episode, our conversation with author Peter Montoya revealed that he is what Kurt and I call an accidental behavioral scientist. And while the initial impression based on the title of Peter's book, The Second Civil War, is one of doom, the book is actually a really optimistic view on how to deal with the conflict people have in the United States today. This was a deep and emotional interview that touched on a lot of concepts about how we need to improve as a society. And as we mentioned before, the gem in this book is that that change needs to start with ourselves. You know, we mentioned that Peter is an accidental behavioral scientist. And what we mean by that is that he's a practitioner of behavioral science concepts, but without lots of the sciency lingo. Speaking of lingo, we want to let you know that if you're curious about some of the behavioral science terminology, about biases and decision-making heuristics, i.e. the lingo, you can find a master list of definitions on our website, www.behavioralgrooves.com. That's found on the Insights page near the bottom, and it's called the Glossary of Behavioral Science Terms. Now, Tim put this together, and I know I know, a few of you might be rolling your eyes at that, but truly, <laughs> this is a great overview of behavioral science principles and biases that can help you not only understand why we do the things we do, but also be able to identify and talk about it intelligently with others. We also will have a link in the episode notes for you to click on to easily get to it. 
thanks for mentioning that, Kurt. I, I certainly appreciate it. And yeah, sure. uh, just just looping back to Peter, in addition to writing a really nice book on how to deal with our differences, his day job is as the CEO of a new firm that is building a civil social media platform called Earth. That's U-R-T-H. And it's a more expanded vision of what our guest Cal Turnbull, remember back in episode 10 wow. in March of 2018, what Cal said about civility, you need context. Context matters, right, Tim? Yes, it does. Yes, okay. It does. And right now, we encourage you to jump into this context with a nice fresh pour of sparkling spring-fed personal growth and enjoy our conversation with Peter Montoya. Peter Montoya, welcome to Behavioral Groups. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. We are thrilled as well to have you. And if our pre-recording conversation is anything like the real conversation, I think our guests will be doubly as excited as well. So we start off with a, with a speed round. First question for you. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Uh, I'm a coffee guy. My coffee more or less is a, a hot version of a milkshake. Ah, a mocha oh, milkshake. Yeah. You <laughs> and me both. With caffeine? Yes. Yeah. yeah. A, I only drink McDonald's mochas every morning, and I have three <laughs> of them stacked in my refrigerator, and my wife teases me. Everyone knows this about me. I just reheat, reheat one every morning. Oh, my yeah. God. So you're not like this super coffee snob where you have to have, you know, uh, some kind of arcane I, Nespresso yeah. or something. I don't have that palate for wine, <laughs> coffee, or beer. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's fantastic. I, okay, I, second yeah. second speed round question. Would you rather spend an afternoon playing golf or riding a motorcycle? <laughs> um, so the reason that's so funny is as soon as this call is done, I'm on my buddy's picking me up to go get my motorcycle. Awesome. I, I just bought a BMW S uh, twelve fifty RS, and I'm going to go get it now. <laughs> as soon as that, this interview. That sounds like a small automobile. That sounds uh, huge. Y- yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's actually a, a fighter jet that happens. Yeah. To <laughs> that happens that to just two have two wheels, wheels and no wings. Yeah. there you go. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's right. it's unbelievable. All right, in the world of verifiably bad ideas, which one is worse: asbestos, Agent Orange, or New Coke? <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, is asbestos. I've actually breathed some before, and it's, oh, it's really, really oh, bad. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah. I did t- tearing up a floor at my grandmother's house when I was remodeling it to sell it, uh, to flip it, and there was asbestos there, and it was in my lungs. Yeah, so I've t- tasted that before. Not a good, oh. not a good, not a good feel. Wow, worse than be- worse than new Coke. Okay, <laughs> so <that's- laughs> well, I, I don't drink soft drinks. Oh, so- there you go. I mean, I know it was a bad marketing blunder, but since I don't drink it, I don't really have a firsthand experience. Okay. See, and, okay, and, and, and in the end, was it really a bad marketing blunder? I mean, they came in with, you know, the well, original Coke and got two different. Anyway, long story. So, OK, right. uh, uh, so uh, true or false? It's difficult, but with enough effort, you can pretty much win any argument on social media, right? It depends what you mean by win, um, because most people will never concede. defeat so do you ever really win is is it even possible really to win in our yeah yeah okay so tell it tell us about this this we're 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 talking about the second civil war and uh and with author peter montoya we want to we want to find out about about the book but let's just start with why do people pick fights on social media and and, and what do they hope to get out of it man you were that's like one of my favorite most juiciest questions 
So uh, I got to go back a little ways. So our brains have not really changed in tens of thousands, if not 100,000 years ago. And so when we look at ourselves, the best way to look at ourselves is as we were 10,000 years ago, and when we were actually living in small tribes of 50 to 150 people. And when we were in those small tribes, the only people that we liked, the only people that we trusted were those 50 to 150 people. And to be part of that tribe was everything. And you knew everyone in that tribe as well as you know your best friend, your spouse, and your partner. And it wasn't like when we today walk up to a grocery store where you don't know the person you're doing business with. You knew everybody and everybody well. You knew what they smelled like. You knew what, they, what their sleeping habits were. You knew them that well. And anybody who was not part of that tribe uh, was the enemy. So if you were out one day with you know your other red-faced, paint, painted compatriots, and you were walking through the forest, whistling along, looking for a bear or whatever it is, and you came across the green-faced people, all of a sudden, you would go into fight-or-flight mode, spears would be raised, yelling would be starting, and there might be violence, and you would either fight or you would flight. Now, here we are 10,000 years later. We've got these amazing institutions. We've been incredibly well civilized. But when we get into a conversation over a dinner table or a lunch table or coffee break room or the holidays or on social online and people display a tribal badge of belief that is different than our tribal badge of belief, our ancient brain fires off and goes into that fight or flight mode. Now, we're more civilized. We don't usually hit people, slap them, whatever it is, but our brains still have the same reaction to want to fight. So we're looking for these tribal badges and tribal badges can be visual. It could be, you know, a MAGA hat. It could be a, every, uh, what's the, what's the bumper sticker where everyone gets along and it has all the different religious icons. Co coexist. Exist. You know, those are all visual badges. Yeah. Uh, the way we dress, you know, your, your, the, your facial hair, these are all badges of, of a sort that kind of tell us what tribe you belong to. And so people who are of our tribe, who are like-minded with us, we feel safe with and people who do not share the same badges of tribal affiliation who do not pass the same litmus chat test we are very wary of so at the end of the day and we are very bigoted and everyone thinks that bigotry means racism that's not the definition of bigotry to be bigotry to be a bigot is to be intolerant of opinions or beliefs that you don't agree with mm -hmm. and human beings default mode is bigotry that is our default. And we have to work overtime to embrace people who have different beliefs, customs, cultures than we do. Yeah. So that is why when we go online, we get fired up very quickly because especially online, they, they aren't people. They're, they are avatars. They're not human beings. They are objectified. So that's why it's so easy for us to get on into a fight online and also the reason we will never, ever back down because to back down is to lose status. Yeah.
<laughs> and right. we are right. all incredibly sad driven creatures. So I'm sorry you asked a short question and got a 10 minute answer. But, <laughs> no, um, that, that, that's where I went today. <laughs> but that, so, so it's interesting. You talk about this idea of obviously this bigotry, this idea that we have confirmation bias, all of those factors that come into play, right? We see things, we, we believe what we believe. And, and if it reinforces that, we like it. If it doesn't, it's like angst for us. And you talk a little bit about this the idea of an avatar on social media, but I think there's a vast difference and I'd love your thoughts on this of, you know, I have a, an acquaintance, I won't call him a friend, an acquaintance who online is just vitriol. He is just horribly mean, pushing, you know, trying to to just change the world and his own life and, and opinion and not doing Kurt, it in you, a very You don't nice have to talk about me in the third person. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tim, I'm sorry. He's right here. He's right here. <laughs> but, then, yeah. but then when I meet with this, you know, yes. Tim in person, he's actually yeah. a pretty, you know, nice guy. And, and, and we don't ever go to those spots, even when that happens. And is what, what's your thoughts around that? And why does that happen? Here's the best metaphor I can give you is that, um, not everyone is a jerk when they drive, but everyone has been a jerk when they've driven a car. <laughs> and when you're driving a car, those cars around you are not human beings. They are objects. They are rhinos. They are threatening things that threaten your life. And that's one of the reasons we are so triggered when we're driving a car. And being online is very, very similar. They are not human beings. They are objects and we don't humanize them. So this person who we argue with online, because they're not a human, they're basically an avatar. They're a threat to us. When we actually sit down to be with them, they're back in their human mode versus in their objectifying mode. So Peter, the, the title of the book is The Second Civil War. It it could be taken as a very pessimistic view. I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of laying it out. But in fact, the book is not terribly pessimistic. You've actually got a lot of like you. You've actually used the term. It's kind of a self help book almost. It's a th almost therapeutic, right? So, so why? Uh, tell us a little bit about why we should be optimistic. Yeah, that is a fantastic question. I'm so glad you did that. So, yeah, it, as far as I know, the Second Civil War: A Citizen's Guide to Healing Our Fractured Nation is the first political self help book. And it basically tells us why we should not be dividing ourselves over politics. I do a lot of corporate leadership development. And when I go into a corporation and they're having problems between their sales uh, teams, marketing teams, customer support and operations, what I do not do is go to each department and, and say, hey, tell me all the things you hate about the sales team and tell me to the customer service, all the things that you hate about operations. And I'll go to operations to say everything you hate about customer service. That's not what I, we do. We go, okay, what is our common mission? What is our common goal? What are our common values? What do you love about the other departments? What are the 95% of the things that we agree upon? And that's what we start with. Then we go, okay, well, let's, we agree on 95%. Here's the 5% that we need to work on. And now we can come together. And that's what this country is. In my book, there is uh, 20 different surveys asking questions on everything from abortion to gun control to taxes to immigration to police. And when you ask liberals or conservatives what we should do from a policy point of view, there is 80 to 90% agreement, 80 to 90% on issue after issue after issue. And then, which is amazing, is you ask those same people, what, uh, 
do you think that there is wide differences between what Republicans and Democrats think? 90% of them think there are wide differences <laughs> just yeah. after they've just agreed on all the same points. So when we talk about issues we agree, as soon as you put the tribal lens of this is a Republican idea or a Democratic idea, then we're massively divided. You you and you talked about this idea of uh, being divided uh, as when we are and that, that we're sort of prone to arguing about politics. Um, but I, I wanted you to get get back to this idea of being optimistic. Could you talk a little bit about what you should do if you want to call a ceasefire in your life? You're st stop arguing about politics and you know starting to work towards common goals. What can someone do? What, what's what, what's the self-help side of this? Right. So the, the first thing is to realize that arguing over politics is stupid. <laughs> and if you're doing that. We heard it here first. <laughs> if you're doing that, you have got to realize that it is an immature and stupid act. So I would love to think that I'm, I'm an original thinker and that I have an original ideas. And the truth is, I don't. I'm a cryptonesiac. And a cryptonesiac is what we all are. A cryptonesiac is where we absorb information from other places, and we don't remember where the information came from, and then we regurgitate it as if it's our own. So if you pick up the news du jour, whatever the issue is today, and I don't know when we're going to be broadcasting, but it could be something over Ukraine or maybe it's gas prices. And what happens is both sides have their media consultants, and they basically create talking points. The talking points start at the top of each political party, then they go to the Congress people, and then it goes to all the, the talk show hosts, and basically it's just these talking points. And then two people get together, and I share my talking point. Well, gas prices are higher because we're paying a little more money for it to clean up the environment. And the other side, well, gas prices is the hor most horrible thing in the world, and it's the president's fault. And if you use that tribal badge... <laughs> then you must be on my side. And if you don't use that travel badge, then you're not. So those conversations have nothing to do about solving problems. Those conversations are 100% my dad can beat up your dad when we're in third grade. <laughs> on the, on the, on the right. That's all right, it is. Right. And as soon as you realize that is the futility of those conversations, the stupidity of those conversations, and you're going, oh my God, that's all I've been doing. I've never changed a single person's mind. I've alienated my friends. I've, I'm anxious all the time. I'm spending two hours a day on social media. I'm watching cable news. And I'm always angry and frustrated. You realize how incredibly stupid it is. And we have done more damage to ourselves inside of our country, more than any other country could have possibly done to us, more than Al-Qaeda did to us. Uh, more than Russia has done to us, we have done to ourselves. And you realize the only people we are hurting is us. You go, I'm stopping this. It is so dumb. So so with that, then what do we do? How do we, I mean, we have those people in our lives who that's what they do. And if we're not able to convince them to say this is stupid as well, do we, do we, how do we get around that? Now, I know this is going to be hard to imagine because it's hard to imagine this time. But there was a time that we didn't talk about politics. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and we talked about things like human beings. And we would talk about football yeah. and the Oscars and the skits in Saturday Night Live. 
and we would ask each other real questions. So I've got a whole list of questions that I now ask people. I ask people like, you know, what are you most excited about this next weekend? Mm. What's the happiest thing that happened to you this last week? What did you learn about your spouse during the pandemic? What did you learn about yourself during the pandemic? What is the most important thing in the world to you? And what are you doing about it? So I've got a dozen questions, and when they talk politics, I go, "Oh yeah, okay, great." And so, uh, you know, Tim, I haven't seen you in a month. Tell me now that we're, you know, travel restrictions are lift, lifted. Where's the? I'm going to give you an unlimited budget. Where do you want to travel, right. and where can, right. can I go with you? And let's have a fantasy conversation about that. And then through that, I want to learn about you, the human being, and learn about your values, because right, these political beliefs. It's no more than wearing a leather jacket or some kind of headdress. That's all that it is. It isn't yeah. who the person is. And we've are gotten tricked into thinking that people people's politics is their morality. And I understand the psychology of why we think it's true. Yeah. But people's politics can be, often is, completely different than their moral reasoning. And yeah, yeah. but we're not we're not rewarded for for being peaceful in in in, in many ways. Like our, our our brain actually doesn't get stimulated by just having a, a you know a quiet conversation. And I think even more, our politicians are not rewarded for for you know coming together. Our our news providers are are you know, are not rewarded for you know being you know sort of centrist. Uh, they get they get rewarded for being you know extremists. So is, is there how can we be hopeful about that? I mean, how do, how do we start to untether the rewards? I guess that, that these 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 different institutions have from being so polarized. Well, fun, uh, Tim, uh, it's funny that you asked. Um, so, <laughs> when I was writing this book a, a year year and a half ago, I did a great deal of research into all the levers that you're talking about, the mechanisms that are all built. Uh, as outrage-driven advertising machines, mm -hmm. yeah. which is most media today, is the more outrage they can make you, the more attention they get of yours, and therefore the more money they make. So let me give you a little, give the audience a wake-up call. If you hate half of America and you are consuming a podcast, a radio show, news, cable news, uh, whoever is making you hate that half of the America is taking advantage of you. Mm -hmm. You are a pawn on their chessboard. You are being manipulated for their own profit. So when the printing press was invented back in the 14, I can't remember what it was, 14 something, 1460 or something like that, there was 30 years of upheaval. Um, and same thing with radio and something of TV. Whenever you have these new mass uh, media communication tools, it usually leads to about 30 years of civil and uh, political unrest. We're 15 years into it. Facebook mm. basically launched in 2007. We're here at 2022. We're 14 years, I can't do my math, 15 years into it with probably about 15 years to go. Um, uh, I am. I have invented, um, and we are currently in production of Earth, U-R-T-H, Earth, which is a civil media platform. Earth.cc is where you can find it if you want to become a beta tester or become part of our co-creation community. And what it does is all the social media functions. Uh, on top of that, it has both policy and technology to guarantee civility in our interaction. So no bots, 
no more trolls and a lot less in- misinformation and people are incentivized to behave in a civil manner and that technology is in there. And the second thing our civil media platform does is it engages and rewards real world connections and real world cooperation. So what makes a civil media platform different than social media is both the civility mechanisms and more importantly, the collective action. So how do you take it from that being that avatar, right, to being more of a human component in that when you're doing this? That's a great question. So this is a little bit bold, and I usually don't like talking about it in interviews because it does get such a strong reaction. Um, so let me ask you a question. Currently, I'm, 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 you know, there are hundreds of different platforms in which you can create pseudonyms um, or operate anonymously. And so in each one of those creates an ecosystem where people can basically say whatever they want without consequence. Um, how is that working out for us as a society so far? <laughs> Ah, uh, perfect. Perfect. No. Right. Perfectly <laughs> not. Yes. Not. Uh, yeah, it would be, not. I would be on the opposite side of that, <laughs> yes. Tim. I would be saying yeah. probably not a good yeah. thing to be totally no. anonymous where you can say whatever no. you want without any of the without consequences on the back. Yeah. So uh, 250 years ago when our founding fathers enshrined one of the most important and most sacred rights, which is freedom of speech, they never imagined that speech would be disembodied from a person's identity. And a person's identity provides natural reputational risk. Yeah, there's a social side of this. When when you and I are speaking to each other and Peter and Tim are standing in the same room when we're talking to each other, there's a social aspect of that. Yeah. And we and we lose that with the with avatars and anonymity. Correct. So the uh, this scares people and, I, and I'm telling you right now I'm going to scare you, but I'm telling you to trust me is that we will be first of all we're a data privacy company. We do not sell or share anyone's data. Very important to know and we have the protocols in place to protect people's data, number one. Uh, number two, everyone goes through uh, identity authentication, which means they hold up an, their ID. Uh, then they actually verify with video that they are who they say they are. And we encourage and reward using pictures, people's of, uh, photos uh, of themselves. So you can you know, put a picture of you and your friends at the beach. I've seen profile like that. That is not going to help you as much as having your own photo there because we really believe, I'm sorry, we know that if you pay the price of getting into our castle walls by verifying your identity, once you are inside the castle walls with a million other people who have all paid the same price, everyone will behave better. Just that one thing is going to dramatically change the ecosystem because everyone now has reputational risk just from identity verification. I, I love that. So it, you talk about in, in the book, you talk about changing someone's mind by building relationships instead of way. arguing. The only and, way. The only yeah, way. Yeah, it's the only way. So help us understand why why that's the only way, as opposed to arguing. I mean, if I have the best argument in the world that I have all the information backing me up, shouldn't that be enough to, and, to and, change and, and your and mind? I, I just want. I just want to verify Kurt always has the best arguments. Really <laughs> I just I just can't say them very well. That's that's my problem. But no, but there to your point, and I'm I'm, I'm just being a little facetious here. But there's this idea that. You know, shouldn't it be enough to have the right information conveyed appropriately to people? And you're shaking your head. So let's, uh, <laughs> Peter, go ahead. Let's hear yeah. the conversation. Uh, facts don't matter. Morality doesn't matter. Our brains are not truth detectors. Our brains are survival machines. 
And the way we survive is by belonging. Mm-hmm. So we believe what we believe in order to belong. All right. I'm really going to date myself. Uh, there was once a movie you know, in the ancient, ancient world called Dances with Wolves. Uh, it tells wow. the story of the tenant. I heard about that. <laughs> I heard about it. I, mean, I, I wasn't old enough, but it came up before I was born. Um, it, it, Lieutenant John Dunbar did something either incredibly brave or incredibly stupid and earned the right to go wherever he wanted. And he wanted to go to the frontier before it was gone, which is where the Native Americans lived. He went out to this very, very distant outpost that had been uh, completely abandoned. Uh, just him and his horse, Cisco. I can't believe I recall that information. Wow. And he came in contact with the Native Americans who were very, very hostile to him. To him. And it started off very, very gradually. It started off with some acts of hostility. And then they decided to make contact. And then they shared coffee. And then they shared different pieces of clothing. And then he started to grow his hair long and started wearing some of their adornments. And then he started learning their language. And then he started um, hunting buffalo with them. And then he moved in with them. And then he learned his lang- their language. And over a period of either months or years, uh, there's a very famous line, and this line sounds racist. I'm only echoing the line from the movie because D- Lieutenant Dunbar was captured by a Union military officer, and he, the military officer said to him, you've gone Injun, haven't you? And that was yeah. exactly right. What yeah. happened is, is that we are assimilation machines, and we will assimilate to whatever culture we are in. So we all think, oh, I've reasoned, I've rationalized tax policy and gun policy, and the reason I believe it is because it's the best thing. Can I say the? Can I say? Can I swear? You can swear all you want. Yeah, please. I believe in policy and tax policy because it's the right thing, and I thought all the way through. Bullshit. It is what your collective group believes, and you will assimilate to believe what they believe. Because if you do not believe what they believe, you will be shunned, and to be shunned psychologically to us is death. So so to what degree are our differences actually our differences versus our perceived differences? Yeah. Uh, once again, going back to that conversation we had earlier about the polling data, yeah. um, you know – if you ask people if you are pro-life or pro-choice, it is almost 50-50 split. It's almost 50-50 split. But then if you ask the question, what, do you believe in that there should be some degree of legal abortion, 80% of people believe that should be some degree of legalized abortion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We should yeah. have we're, – we're, we're, we're in, in 80 to 90 percent agreement. You've alluded to some of these before, these rationalizations. You talk, you have like the, was it the nine rationalizations in the book and uh, love this idea of, you know, we're not as smart as we think we are kind of things. And I was just wondering, are there any of the rationalizations that really stood out to you? Yeah. So all of my knowledge is temporary pending new information. That is one that I live by. Uh, I love to get righteous about stuff. And so I have to constantly veer my mind back to remembering that my knowledge is temporary and mm. I'm just looking for new information to replace bad information rather than being stuck on anything. It's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. So I have been fooled. There are beliefs that I currently have that are currently wrong. And finding somebody else's belief that is wrong really doesn't help me that much. Mm. Finding what I believe that's not true and fixing it helps. So that's far more valuable to me um, than changing somebody else's mind. And harder to do, right? I mean, it it is much more difficult for us to look in the mirror 
at the, what did I say wrong in that conversation? Or, you know, how, how did I drive badly today? You know, those, mm-hmm. those are much more difficult questions for us oh, to yeah. answer. You're absolutely right. And then that, and that's and funny. That's the only way to grow. It's really strange. Me pointing out the flaws of other people doesn't help me grow. Yeah. Huh. You, you start at the very beginning of the book. You have this picture of this gravestone from the Anglo-Saxon bishop from oh, like God, 11... Right. 100 CE, yeah. right? That I, I, I love it? it. Yeah. Do you want to, you want to read, read it? No, no, no. You, you should read that. You, you should right. read that, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's just wonderful the, the way that, that this lays it out. And it kind of goes to what I think you're talking about here. Yeah. This is, this is the framework of the whole book. Yeah. When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamed of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change. So I shortened my sights somewhat and direct decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they wouldn't have it, none of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realized if I had only changed myself first, then by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would have cha- been, then been able to cha- better my country. And who knows, I may have even changed the world. Anglo-Saxon Bishop, 1100 CE, engraved on his tombstone in the crypts of Westminster Abbey. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, we try to go and change the world. We try to change other people's opinions has been around forever. And we still realize to this fact that that isn't going to make as much of a difference as changing ourselves. So um, I've really uh, become the, my latest neural, I'm sorry, nerd investigation has been into, into ego to understand what the ego is. And the ego is basically the story of who we tell ourselves we are. Mm. It is also how we tell people how we deserve to be treated. The ego is really interesting because it is actually an illusion and it's really hard to see that. Uh, It's not real, but it's a story that we've told ourselves. Our ego is both our psychological protection and it's also a prison. So there is a difference between pain and suffering and pain, you know, it actually has leaves physical marks or even psychological marks. And then there is suffering. And pain in life is mandatory. Everyone's going to face pain, but suffering is actually optional. Mm. And suffering is the creation is the difference between what our, how our ego says our life should be and how our life actually is. So most people right now who are in the second civil war have a story in their head about how the the country should be and how it should operate. And they're basically going, well, it isn't that way. And it, the reason it's not that way is because of the Republicans or because of the Democrats or because of social media and that story and that delta, the difference between how things are and how things they, they believe should be is what causes suffering. And But as soon as you realize that that is just a story created inside of your head and that ego is completely manufactured, it's just a construct. And as soon as you have the power to change the construct, construct you change your reality. So how does one go about 
identifying and seeing their own ego if it's so hard. And you might want to talk about maybe the the journey that you took yourself on in order to get here. Yeah. So first of all, that, that word journey is the most perfect word ever. There is an easy thing that, you know, most human beings, including myself, our default mode is to, is judgment. Yeah. So I'll, I'll look at somebody, I'll go, I'm smart. They're, they're smarter or dumber than I am. They're richer. They're have, you know, they're better looking, Wh- whatever criteria we use. We're very, very judgmental creatures. Um, but the word journey dissipates, dissolves all of that. And the word journey doesn't have status attached to it and doesn't have progress attached to it. Mm-hmm. Every single person is on their own journey to become the best version of themselves. And there's no race, there's no awards, there's no I'm farther on my journey than you. Everyone is on their own individual journey toward this best version of themselves, toward fulfillment. Uh, and that's the why, why the word journey is such a beautiful and perfect world, word. So the next time that you are, in, as I have, I, I think I told you prior to the call that I'm in the middle of a divorce. Um, um, my wife and I are divorcing, and uh, my wife is my the love of my life. Uh, I am madly, madly in love with her, and I don't want the divorce. And um, letting her go and saying, yes, I give you the divorce even though I don't want it, was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But, but you know, in the last six months, as we've been going to counseling, uh, I was caught up in the game of, well, this is your fault and mm. it's all your fault and here's all the things that you do. And I was caught up in that for the first last six months. It wasn't until this last month that I finally learned the lesson, which I've been told for 35 years, which is you can't change anybody else other than yourself. And when you change yourself, you change your relationships. It took me 35 years to have that lesson beat into my head. Here's what I can I can tell you: every single complaint you should have truth. You should have truth tellers. These are yeah. friends and family. It could be a brother. It could be a, a spouse. It could be a coworker. You should have many, many truth tellers, and these are the people who tell you how you are. Uh, I used to believe that I knew myself better than anybody else. And there's some truth to that. No one knows my thinking as well as I. No one else can read my mind. But I am now convinced that everybody knows how I am better than I do. They know what my characteristics are, what my behaviors are like. They know the nature of me better than I do. And so when a friend or even a critic tells me a complaint, I used to go, Oh, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting opinion that you now have. And I used to kind of keep it like, you know, arms just length away from me and not really absorb it and just go, well, I know myself better than they do. And they're clearly misperceived. Now, my point of view is they're absolutely right. Every complaint my wife had about me is absolutely true. And now I got to get my ego out of the way so I can see their reality. And so now I'm a detective. And when they say, Peter, I really find that you're really arrogant, which is true. Um, uh, okay, great. How does that exemplify for you? I'm like, I'm just curious. I just, please tell me how I show up like that. And I want to go in there and do my best to change it. So I don't behave that way anymore. Because here's the good news is you can't change the past, uh, but you can change yourself going going forward. And it's, yeah. you know, to, I'd rather know about a problem and be able to fix it than not know. So- 
just believe everything people say about you. There's some truth there to it. Yeah. 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 What was the catalyst? What, what, what somehow tips you over into this, you know, Hey, you know, my wife was right. I've, so I've not talked about this publicly. Um, and it's, I'm having my, my ego's having a moment right now. Uh, my ego <laughs> likes to look good. Yes. So you I'm guys having, always like to look good. You look great. Yes. Let me tell you, you yeah. look great. Um, and so it, being looking good is part of it. And, uh, I tried psilocybin, which is, uh, mushrooms. And so I have a friend and a group of friends who are part of, uh, a psychedelic community who uses psychedelic medicines as a way of doing the work. So they, they have married the medicines uh, along with therapy. Both should be done together, um, not in isolation. And through a psychedelic experience using psilocybin, uh, I was able to, for three hours, have what's called ego death. Ego death is where you lose, you don't know who you are, where you are, why you are. The, I, the, the, the loser self was completely dissolved for three hours. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that I was different than the wall. I didn't know that I was different than the, the, the caretaker who I was talking with. There was no separation between me and other people. Um, I had an experience and how I defined my experience, it felt to me like I saw the fabric of reality. That was the intensity of the experience. Reality was no longer real to me. Other people have had that same journey and they have said things like this. Uh, I touched the face of God. Mm -hmm. I saw the collective in consciousness. Uh, I am now one with everything. So people have different ways of expressing that same experience. And when that journey was over, all of a sudden my ego was down. And all of a sudden, uh, the first person I called was my ex-wife who I hadn't talked to in five years. It was 1130 at night. And I was just coming down and I had her tell me about our divorce and I heard it for the first time. Mm. For the first time I heard all of her complaints. And I remembered a conversation that we had in, in, in March of 2010, where we were in the garage of our old house and she was screaming at me and she was so angry and I was calm. I was like, okay, well, she said, obviously angry because of the divorce. And I was sitting there calmly. And she said, you pretend you're a good guy, but you're actually not a good guy. You're a narcissist. All you do is care about yourself. And I heard that and I went, okay, well, that's interesting. She thinks that. And I didn't retaliate. I just says, thank you. And it wasn't until after the end of my journey that I was reflecting on that. And I saw the truth in that statement. And I called her. 12 years afterwards and said, I finally knew what you meant. And the next week I was going through conversation after conversation and interaction. And finally my ego was down enough that I could actually see what they were talking about. So uh, I am uh, a believer <laughs> in psilocybin and I really sincerely believe that when most uh, therapists and practitioners begin their exploration of psilocybin as a, a, a co-facilitator with therapy, they're going to go, oh my God, why haven't we been doing this for 50 years? It's going yeah. to revolutionize therapy for certain people. Yes, there are, are absolutely people who should not be doing uh, psychedelic medicines uh, under care 
under direction, uh, psilocybin with therapy in the right environment is probably the most powerful, profound tool uh, that I've ever used to finally see who the person Peter is. Well, our brains have such a powerful way of deceiving us because we want to view, as you talked about the ego, this idea that we want to hold the self-identity up as being this, I'm a good person. I am a uh, I, I want to pro- not only just project that, I want to believe that myself. And by breaking down walls, you're able to maybe get a more realistic look at who you are. And I think that is a very positive thing. We've had other guests on, Tara, Austin, one that talked very highly about the ability of, of having using you know, mushrooms and, and, and psychedelics in a, again, appropriate way, as you've said, with counselors, not just going off and doing it crazy, but making sure that you're in a safe place to be able to break down those walls, to be able to get a really good look at who we are, because in the end, that's the reality that we live in. And as many of the walls that we put up and, and are there, as we can try to ignore them, but they're there and, uh, you know, others see it, as you said. I, I love the idea, too, if, if, it's, if people aren't in, interested in looking and doing a psychedelic kind of journey, at least be taking that, that friends, those co- acquaintances, the reality point that you talked about earlier to heart because they see a part of us that we aren't allowing ourselves to see. And so there's truth in everything that they say. And so we need Correct. to a lot. We need to address that truth. And if we don't, it's only going to harm us in the end. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox there. But so great, we great operate stuff. Um, as human beings using something called theory of mind. Mm-hmm. And theory of mind allows for us to look at your behaviors and your facial expressions and your actions to basically look at another human being and go, "Is this person going to hurt me? Is yep. this person going to behave in a way that uh, is going to be safe for me?" And when you say to somebody. I like you. What you're really saying is when I see myself through your eyes, I like what I see. Mm -hmm. The reason that we get into cat and dog fights with our spouses, our partners, our best friends is because that person is in our mind, psychologically, the most essential person to our survival. And if that person doesn't like us or sees us in a negative way, we think we might get shunned and thrown out. And to that is death. So to be broken up with, to be thrown out of a group, that is akin to death in our minds psychologically. That's why it's so painful. So the reason we fight with our spouses and our spouse says, well, you don't do this or you don't do that is because we hear them having a perception of us that we don't like, that we feel might be throwing us out of the relationship. So we argue with them because we don't want to be seen the way they're saying that we are. Yeah. So that, you know, you read, I mean, look at, uh, I'm sorry, the the best researcher on marriage is John Gossman. He wrote some wonderful books. One book is called The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. And, you know, part of that book, what it really is about is being able to have Say things kindly. I mean, that, that really is what it bears down to rather than having a violent approach and saying you always or you never or you're such a or or you're this, uh, you know, sharing a feeling saying, hey, you know, I was I was really hurt the other day when you came in uh, and you made a, a mess and left things behind. And then I had to take care of all of it. And the book really just is a manuscript 
about how to talk to each other in a way that doesn't get us into those fights, which threatens our egos and threatens the relationship. Mm. Um, and the lessons that apply in that book to marriage apply to coworkers and other human beings. And Kids it's another and way family, of looking at my book yeah. too. Yeah, yeah family. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's so great to have this conversation with you, Peter. And I just want to pause for just a minute to say thank you for your openness and your vulnerability, your authenticity just shine through so beautifully. And we're really grateful for that. Um, and at the same time, I want to hear about this new great song that you've been, you were teasing up before <laughs> we, before we started recording and you haven't told us what the new song is oh, and I got to hear about it. Who's, who's the artist and what's it, what is this new song? Yeah. You know, it's, it it oh uh, yeah. So I'm a huge music fan. I, uh, I listen to music all day long. Uh, I found just discovered music at the age of five with one of those, uh, old Fisher price, uh, turntables. Oh, yes. they kind of beige ones that opened up yeah. and my mom had the Beatles and maybe it was a meet the Beatles album. And I want to hold your hand was on it and it played scratchy. And I listened to that same song 3000 times. And the other album she had was the Standells called dirty water. And I listened to them nonstop. And my mom would be walking by my room with this scratchy, horrible record player. And she, to make me turn it off. But then I was a classic rock guy. Uh, then I kind of ventured off in instrumentals. Uh, then I'm, you know, really into Radiohead and all these alternative rock groups that were kind of weird. Like, I mean, I even like Bjork. So uh, <laughs> I, I like layered, compl complex music. Okay. Uh, in 1999, Joe Strummer, Joe Strummer, who was From the, the clash. singer of The Clash, yeah. um, had created a bunch of hooky songs. You know, he had, I'm going to say hook, hook, like, I'm not talking about a profession songs that had a lot of hooks in it, you know, rock the Casbah yeah. London is falling. And he had yeah. these big kind of punk at anthem songs. And that's what I was used to. It was great music. And then in 1999, he put out an album under his own name. And on that album was a song called Yala Yala. And I heard that song back in 1999. And I said to myself, what the, F is this song. It sounded so weird and so bizarre. And it was a strange instrumental. And I listened to it and go, this is not rock the Casbah. This is not London's calling. What is this? And I couldn't hear it. And then last week I was with my son. I, I have a 15 year old son and I, I drive him to school and it's the best 30 minutes hour I get with him every day, 30 minutes to and from school. Uh, I get with him every single day because we talk I can't, he doesn't use his phone and on spotify came this list and on came that song uh yala yala and i heard it differently than i heard it 20 years ago and when i heard it it was like oh my god this is the greatest song i've ever heard <laughs> and to somebody who is used to very simple corded music You'll hear it and go, mm, it's really weird. But the, to those of us who have a are used to complexity in music, when you hear it, you'll hear the beauty and the authenticity of it. And his voice is not beautiful. It's not a pretty voice. The lyrics are not beautiful, and it doesn't have any catchphrases. But the message is so what it is. It is so incredibly authentic. Authentic. His voice is that has that Neil Young like characteristic mm. to it. To it. Yeah. Neil Young, once yeah. again, not a pretty doesn't have a pretty voice. No, but there's an authenticity to it. Yeah. And it this song Yala Yala is like abstract art. When you go into a, a museum and you see a bunch of color on a wall, and you go, "What's this painting about?" and the person goes, "What does it mean to you?" 
That's what Yala Yala is. And to me, it, it is just a pure expression of human, the angst of being human. It is that journey of being caught in the, our humanity where we are racist and we are arrogant and we are judgmental and we are flawed and we, and we love and we want to be fulfilled and we want great relationships. And to me, that's what that song is. It is a primal scream, screaming that I am stuck in the human condition and I can't get out of it. <laughs> if there hasn't been a better sales pitch for a song that we've had on on Behavioral Grooves, I would say this is by far that best one. But what I love, Peter, is this, this fact that you said, I heard it. I heard it back in 1999 or 1980, whenever that was, right? I, I, or whenever that came out. But you have changed. You are a different person. Mm -hmm. And by being that different person, it takes on a whole different meaning. And there are so many songs that are like that, that I have gone back where I'm like, going, I remember this, but I didn't really like it. And then you go, wow, why didn't I like it? Or the song that you loved and you kind of listen to it now and you go, why did I ever, why, what, what did I find appealing about this? And so I think that we show up as different people and the music that we listen to at those moments in our lives are defining because they're of that moment in our lives, that that's part of the reason that we love the music. And sometimes we go back into music, like Tim has talked about this a lot, the idea that our favorite music is often a very part of our lives that are very meaningful for us. And so we go back to that to live, relive the you know high school or the, the college years. Um, but yet I still think that there's a growth and element of that, that you've talked about the journey aspect of it. Herculitus was a Greek philosopher born in 544 BC. He said the following, no man ever steps in the same river twice for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. Yeah. yeah. Peter Montoya, this has been a fantastic conversation. We are so grateful for your time, your insights, your willingness to write and speak bravely. Thanks for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. I loved our conversation today. I can't thank you enough for having me. And I, I only hope that I'd be blessed enough to come back and have a conversation with you again uh, where I don't hog 90% of the airtime. <laughs> we love that you hog 90% of the airtime because it was so fantastic. And thank you, Peter. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Peter, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our egocentric brains. God, isn't that the truth? Well said. <laughs> well said. There's nothing better on earth. I mean, I think it was W.H. Auden that said that the word I should just be stricken from the language because everything that comes out of our mouth is really I. It always starts with I. So starts how with would I say a sentence <laughs> about me with any, ah, I got it. I know <laughs> ego is though. It's this idea that, oh my God, you think about all of the things that ego impacts all of the negative aspects of it. I mean, ego has its positives as well. There are some yep. factors. Yes. We need to have that confidence. We need to have that self-assurity, all of those things. But overall, you kind of look at ego and you go, man, you are, 
you are pretty self-centered bastard, aren't you, ego? You know, come on. That's ego's role, yeah, to be that self-centered bastard. There you go. Uh, And ego does it well. Could we start grooving with the idea that, uh, you know, I I think in the introduction I mentioned that Peter is an accidental behavioral scientist. Yes, he is. You know, he doesn't use a lot of the behavioral science lingo. He doesn't use a lot of those terms, but he is a nerd. He knows them on the back end. Yeah, just he's, wanna... he's studied this stuff. He, he's yeah. he's less of a be- accidental behavioral scientist than we think. He's, he's more of a studied student of the arts. He certainly is. But I love the fact that he talks about a lot of social science issues without pinning the social science or behavioral science name on them. You know, like, he like talked. What? Like what? Well, so, like, so give me an example, man. Well, to start off, this whole social media, he said, is is uh, it's not really social in the way that our brains know social. And he's talking about evolutionary psychology and that our brains are still sort of 40,000 years old. You know, there hasn't been a lot of we've had a lot of change. I know you're old, but I'm not quite (laughs) 40,000. My brain is only about 54 years old right now. But, you know, mine's older. (laughs) Back when I was 40,000 years old. (laughs) Back in the day, 40,000 years ago, my brain wouldn't let you talk like this. No, but that's you're absolutely right. I'll I'll just aside this idea that our brains evolved in a world that was so different than this current current world, particularly social, because we know we've talked to primatologists, we've talked to evolutionary psychologists, we've talked to Henry yeah. Gee, who talked about the short history of the entire world, which was who, fantastic. You know, all of these these people who are talking about we evolved to be social creatures. That was one of the evolutionary advantages that propelled us to where we right. are right now. And right. that social interaction wasn't evolved to be online on a screen where we're anonymous. And so, yeah, that absolutely. So what else? What what other things? Well, of course, and that links directly into this idea that focusing on our commonalities to build relationships is an advantage to humans above all other species. And that just gets back to Bob Cialdini's work on liking and unity, Uh, right? Like the the more we identify ourselves with other people, the more persuasive, the more, you know, uh, the, the more we engage. Uh, so I think that that's, that's really important. Which, and and which what, again, what, oh, re- go ahead. relates to, you know, this idea that in order to survive with our tribe, that we are looking for social proof and, and elements of how we need to behave within that social group, right? Yeah. And then also this idea that that when we're on a phone or something else and we get that little ding and we get the little things, it releases dopamine in our brains and it has this dopamine wanting, so we become more addicted. And so, again, he doesn't bring up the dopamine, in fact, but that is indeed what is going on with, with some of the stuff that he's talking about here. So Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and to stay in this social thing, the, one of the things that I really liked what Peter had to say was bringing up uh, a, a social proof issue and saying that we believe in order to survive with our child and uh, our tribe. Like we we actually get to a point where it's like, well, if I still want to be a part of this tribe, I'm going to have to believe this. Mm. And and I see this. I, I I certainly see a lot of it in organized religion, but this happens in any kind of community you want to associate with. There could come a time when you ha- when you have that where you're faced with the issue of do I believe this or not, and the overriding fact is I'd rather stay in the tribe, so I'm going to believe it. Which goes to another thing he said, which is you can't change someone's mind with your facts. Which again, particularly if that those facts contradict yeah. what the tribe is saying, and that's that confirmation bias or our preheld beliefs on that already. Yeah, that confirmation yeah. bias is really big there. Um, yeah. 
What else? Well, what did you think of the, uh, his comment about truth tellers? I loved when he talked about truth tellers and how important truth tellers are. It's, it's how good it is to have it in our lives. Did that connect with you at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's in, it's interesting. I think obviously one of the things we know about ourselves, at least from the research, is that we are blind to uh, many of these biases within ourselves. And so the idea of having these truth tellers is a way of putting a mirror up in order to reflect back on ourselves and understand as as we talk about this that hey, these things aren't just somebody else's issues, that they're issues that we have ourselves. And in order to be the best person and to, A, change myself so that I can change my family and immediate friends and others that can then change the community, that can then change the larger society, I need to start and have those truths be, you know, pointed out so that I'm, I'm not blind to them. And, you know, it goes, again, fundamental attribution error, all of those other factors that come into right. play with that, right? Yeah. Connects, connects right into it. And that, that also leads to, at the core of all of this, at the root of all of this, is I feel like Peter's big message is kind of get over yourself. <laughs> you know, right? Well, maybe you can get over yourself, but man, I'm pretty big guy to get over. Come on. Well, well, you know, if you're going to live a better life, both for yourself and the society as a whole, you kind of have to start with, you kind of have to get over yourself. That's true. And, you know, so that, which I think what was interesting to me is it aligned to some of the work that we've been doing, right? This this idea. So for listeners who haven't heard us talk about this, I don't know if we've actually really talked about it that much, but we are working on a book called Finding Your Groove. That's the the title as it's, it stands right now, which is really about this idea of how do you take behavioral science principles and apply those so that you're living the best life that you can and yeah, that you're yeah. maximizing and being purposeful about your life. And this idea that you have to get over yourself in order to have that more meaningful life. Again, it goes back to ego. It goes back to being able to look at yourself with some humility, with a little bit of, you know, element that says, I'm not as perfect as I like to think I am. Yeah. And when you do that, that you then open yourself up to a, a wider, it's it's vulnerable. It's this area where we expose ourselves to being wrong, to to changing and challenging long-held strong beliefs that form our core identity. But when you do that, and if you do that openly, I think that leads to a bigger, better opportunity for us in the long run. It, it really does. I think if we were more purposeful and more uh, intentional in our lives, especially about bigger picture issues, then we wouldn't be fighting over politics so much. Oh because my gosh. Yeah. it's not that politics don't matter. They do. Yeah. I, you know, this isn't to to diminish the, the role of, of politics, in, especially in a democracy. But holy Hannah, if we just didn't take it so goddamn seriously, we could get to the bigger issues, which Peter did a great job of pointing out, I think. Well, th- what I loved about what Peter was saying is, look, we have much more in common than we tend to believe. There was an interesting, I saw a little meme on Twitter the other day that was like, what uh, American people believe how many people are this versus the actual reality. And they had things like 
make over a million dollars a year as a, as a household. And people thought, oh, that's like 15 to 20 percent of the population. When in fact, it's less than one percent. Right. Make, yeah. a, you know, our transgender, you know, oh, they thought that was like 20 some percent, too. And it's really it's like one, two percent and, you know, yeah. all those. But there's this big gap in our beliefs about what the other side a thinks or believes or what we think in general is going on with with the world when in fact there's so much more overlap in our realities we all want the same things i mean his idea about abortion the idea that everybody oh, yeah. wants you know fewer abortions it's just the, the how do you go about doing that and and how are you achieving that goal uh, is 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 a big it's a big divide but when we look at the the outcome well then that is a big piece that we can we can probably come around and hopefully get agreement to if we just got out of our egocentric or our our group centric tribe kind of basis around that yeah and regrettably it doesn't serve the media to have a lot of consensus no, it, it, it doesn't serve social media to have a lot of consensus because I'm going to click on that thing that says, hey, everybody agrees with this. And therefore, we should all just all sing right. Kumbaya. No, but this is <laughs> right. this is, I think, a big piece because we tend to go full in on in-group versus out-group, oh. rejecting yeah. good ideas, even rejecting actual evidence because it contradicts our tribe's narrative. And to, to stay in the tribe, to be a good member of the tribe, we need to do this. So I, I think one of the things that Peter brings up, and at least in my perspective, is this idea of we need to overcome this. We need to look at the objective truth of something. Mm -hmm. So the message is taking the messenger out. I love the idea, you know, we've talked about this before, yeah, like yeah. people cheering when there was a quote that some kids said at his, his, you know, graduation speech, and he said it was from Trump, and they cheered, and then he goes, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I misread, that was from, from Obama, and then they booed. It's the same message. It was the but, same message. You know, yeah. and, and, and yeah. to overcome that, and, and not say, that, that happens both sides of the aisle. It's not oh, one, one or the other. So we need to look for those commonalities. We need to be pragmatists. We need to look for solutions wherever they come from, particularly in today's world, without regard to is it a right-wing, left-wing, Republican, Democrat, a Canadian, American, who cares, right? If it's a good idea, if it's a solution that's going to work, let's take it, let's work it. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard. And one of the things I was thinking of is this idea, and this goes back to our conversation to also with Dominic Packer and kind of the, the power of us, right? Oh, yeah. This idea of finding those larger groups. I'm wondering if we could form smaller groups that are built upon other elements besides politics, this idea of, hey, we're rational beings, you know, so let's form a rational club and it, it combines both. And then our identity is around being rational as opposed to being a, a Democrat or a, re a Republican. Kind of, you know, Rotary does that a little bit for me, right? We, we are these people who got together to give back um, to society and to, to have, you know, doing good in the world doesn't matter your political bent, doesn't matter your religious bent, it doesn't matter any of those. It's we're good people trying to, to you know, impact the world in a positive way. So I love that. That's that's actually a great example, Kurt. And uh, it, it, I, I just have to mention Peter's term for the media is the outrage driven advertising machine. 
And the less time, <laughs> the less time we spend with them and the more time we spend with a group like Rotary helps us redefine a, a little bit in a really positive way. Well, and one of the things, in go, again, going on to this is this idea that, you know, we can get, we can go, oh, I'm never going to change their minds either, right? Uh, the, the other side, this different pieces. And if we, if we, A, back away from the, our side versus their side, but also just look at, all right, we can change people's minds. I mean, advertisers mm -hmm. do this day in yeah. and day out. It's real. It, it absolutely is. I go back to Cal Turnbull from <laughs> episode 10. Yeah. Way, this is oh like, my God, that was when like we were four young years ago. and we had hair and all sorts of fun stuff. You didn't have hair. Oh, yeah. I guess my <laughs> Stop, stop that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Cal talked about what his grandfather said, and he says uh, about changing minds. He said, one begins with a judgment and ends with a judgment. And the purpose of the facts and figures that come in between them is to make the judgment you end with more accurate. Still, still, oh my gosh, that. I just, I just adore that. And I, and I think Peter is kind of getting to that. Even when he, when he says life is a journey, it's not a race. Mm. It's like, let's just consider we're going to be moving from point A to point B. We don't necessarily know what point B is going to be, no. but let's get into what reality is, what the actual facts are, so that when we get to point B, it will be a better place than point A. And and to enjoy the journey as we're going and to really, yeah. you know, make a point of doing things so that you're not always racing to get to the next, you know, mile marker, but you're taking a chance to look around, which is, again, part of what we talk about um, in, in finding your groove or hopefully we will be talking yeah. about. Well, how far, how far can we take this? The, I mean, it gets to be ridiculously absurd if you th start thinking about uh, how important the political tribes are right now. Mm -hmm. Like, where, do we start having Republican and Democratic uh, grocery stores <laughs> or clothing outlets? <laughs> I mean, well, but, but again, you, they're, they're signaling, right? I mean, this idea that would you find a you know a right wing Republican driving a, a Subaru right versus you know the <laughs> okay. right. the left leaning LBGQ driving? Well, actually, you might find them driving a big you know Chevy truck, but you know that that's um, <laughs> okay. But, but there are those those things, right? You 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 hear the outrage too, like when a when a company speaks up for somebody who's doing social advocacy and, and different pieces, you know, that, and then you get outrage yeah. on both sides and you get the, my pillows versus the, you know, Nikes of the world. And it's just crazy. <sighs> well, and you get people yeah. burning pillows and you get people burning, burning shoes. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. What else did you want to groove on? Kurt? So I just, I, I thought, so what was really, A, this was, this was both enlightening and it was wonderful. And I thought it, it really added, but you could feel the emotion that Peter brought when he was talking about ego death and kind of some of oh, his experiments yeah. in this and what that meant from his life. And he's going through this divorce and all that. And it was very personal. And I want to thank Peter for that because yeah, I yeah, thought that it was it it made the message that much more powerful, and and it was opening yourself up and being vulnerable, and I think that's what we all need to do. Yeah, talking about using psilocybin mushrooms is a pretty big deal in the world today. There's not a lot of people who are just coming right out and saying, "I tried it and this is what happened to me." I also, and so I'm really proud of him. I'm just, I just kudos to him for just being so bold. The other thing is that I, I found out that 
when we recorded this, when we recorded our conversation, he was only a week out from from the separation of he and his wife and deciding to pursue divorce. Like this was a really fresh and raw wound. And he was so, so gutsy, yeah. I think, to share that. And I just, I, I want to applaud that as, as well. And I think in the end, if I have a message to take out of this, I think when all is said and done, it's this idea that, all right, we all want to live good lives with people that we love and, and, and that we're often blind to our own faults, to those own blind spots that we have about how we show up, that the ego gets in the way, that all of these factors play out in our lives. And finding ways to see those faults and to face them can be a Herculean task, but it's one that we should all try to do. And you know how you get there, I think, is a really, it's a journey that you have to take. It's a journey I'm taking. It's a journey you're taking. It's a journey I think all of our listeners are taking. And some of us are being purposeful about it and others are just letting that world happen. And the more purposeful we can be with the intent of living a better life and giving a better life for those around us, I think we're going to be better off. So I couldn't agree more, Kurt. Thank you for that lovely sermon there at the end. <laughs> I always oh, have serious. a sermon at the end. What I is it with me? I should be a should be a minister, don't you think? Coulda, that, coulda, yeah. shoulda. Coulda, shoulda. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode of Behavior Grooves. But before we sign off, I just want to mention that being authentic and vulnerable takes a lot of work. And Peter is not some superhero born with superhero powers. He's just an ordinary guy who has worked really hard to make himself better over the years. You know that. Uh, thank you for saying that, Kurt, because it, it reminds me of, of the story that he told about uh, Heraclitus, actually is the pronunciation Heraclitus, about how we cannot step into the same river twice. So if you don't mind, I just like to, just to play that that little clip. Let's just listen to Peter one more time. Read that. Herculitus was a Greek philosopher born in 544 BC. He said the following, no man ever steps in the same river twice for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. What we get to experience in each discussion with our guest, Kurt, and what comes out of each episode is kind of like a step in a river that we can never step in again. Right. It's really cool that we get to be on this journey with these amazing people and that I get to be on this amazing journey with you, even if it's just for a little bit. I couldn't agree more. That is uh, well said, Tim. So, all right. Very cool. And if you like what you hear, Groovers, if you like stepping into this river with us, we hope that you'll leave us a quick good rating or a review and that this week we hope you take some of Peter's great ideas with you and they help you find your groove. <laughs>